The sermon you are about to hear was given at Pillar Bible Fellowship in Hood River, Oregon. Pillar Bible Fellowship exists to glorify God by knowing Christ more fully and making Christ more fully known. Email any comments or questions about the sermon to feedback at pillarhoodriver.org. You can find more information about Pillar Bible Fellowship online at www.pillarhoodriver.org. Please enjoy the podcast. All right. Would you guys um, join me one more time in prayer as we get into the preaching of God's Word? And Father in heaven, um, your Word is open, and I do pray our hearts are as well. Our hearts that they need, um, they need your touch. They need your hand working and, and continuing to, to shape and to draw us closer. Closer to you and um, more reflective of the life of our Savior, Jesus Christ. And so, Father, I, I ask that Holy, your Spirit, God, would, would just would be working uh, in me and through me. Uh, and the preaching of your word, that, that there would indeed be an imparting of this message you have for your church. I pray it's timely that in, in, that, um, in that secret space, even within each of us, God, that you would minister specifically um, to each soul present, that you would indeed, by your word, do a, do a sanctifying work in our hearts, do a saving work, God, be glorified and be honored, I pray, in the preaching of your word. I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So we went from chilly to maybe warm. How are we doing temperature-wise? We're good? All right. Excellent. So Genesis chapter 46, not all of it, just the first 27 verses. Um, You know, and looking at this passage, I've... I started reflecting on the, just the moves that my family have, have had over the years. So I'm going to go way back to when I was eight years old is when I experienced a move for the first time. Who here is eight? Is that you, Alden? You eight? You seven. Okay, so almost your age. I know there's some eight-year-olds over here probably, pretty close. All right, well, anyway, I was, I, was, I was eight years old when we had that first move. And it was a big move at that. It was my first one. And, and all I knew in life up until then was that of growing up in Keno, which is a small town outside of Klamath Falls, Oregon. For job-related reasons, my parents moved the entire family to Canby, Oregon, a rural town outside of Portland. Three years later, our family moved back to the same home in Keno where I finished the days of my youth. My next move was a smaller one. I moved out of my parents' home into an apartment shared with two other roommates in Klamath Falls midway through my freshman year in college at OIT, where I remained till the start of my senior year, which was exclusively an externship, a year given to apply all that I've learned in class in a, clinical, in a clinical setting for training and experience purposes prior to graduating. This took place in Seattle, Washington. Another big move in life. 
biggest jet, like by myself, out of Oregon. Following the completion of that year, I found residence in Boise, Idaho, where I landed my first job out of college. Two years down the road, now married to my wonderful bride, Marcy, an opportunity came, came up to take a job in Bend, Oregon. We agreed to make this big move, which involved Marcy actually staying in Boise for an, an additional, or not additional, another six months while she finished up her LPN degree at Boise State. So once settled in, settled in Bend together, we had another three separate moves from within the town of Bend, which took place over the course of 10 years. All this preceded God calling my family and I to join up with the Bronsons to move to Hood River and support and involvement in the church planning of Pillar Bible Fellowship. That was a big move, probably the biggest of them all, because of all that it entailed. Selling of a home that we loved and sweated to have built, right, and and became a family in. Uprooting from a community and church body we've been a part of for over a decade. Employment change, going from a place of, of seniority to now that of a newcomer. Just to, name of the, just to name a few of the things that contributed to the magnitude of this change in our lives, now with two children under the ages of 10 being a part of it. And with each of these moves, there was a lot of mixed feelings going on inside. Oftentimes, feelings that are opposed to one another. And the bigger the move, the stronger the feelings are, aren't they? And I get a sense that Jacob is in these very waters today as we take a look at Genesis 46. Could there be any bigger move in Jacob's life than this one? Now at the age of 130 years old, he also did some moving in his earlier, earlier years. We've gone through that in Genesis. But this one ought to take the cake for all that entailed here at the end of his life. And big moves are not just moving to a different place of residence. Jacob's pursuit of a bride took a couple big moves. Other than just a change in residence. You know, working Seven years for his uncle Laban to have the hand of Rachel in marriage was a big move, a decision he made that took up a portion of his life and thereby was a part of his life, which resulted in being duped by Laban to marry Rachel's sister Leah instead. And this brought about another big move by Jacob in agreeing to commit his life and services to Laban for an additional seven years to finally get Rachel's hand in marriage. So I imagine perhaps at this point, you may be reflecting on your own moves over the years of your life. But like Jacob, big moves are not just changing the place of residence. The pursuit of a spouse. From singlehood to now married. That's a big move. 
you know, ultimately committing oneself to another in the covenant of marriage, huge move. Same as we saw with Jacob. All are big moves in life. I recall the time when I took ownership of my faith in Jesus Christ. That was a big move. Do I take this this gospel seriously and surrender my life to the lordship of Jesus? Or do I not? And stop pretending as if I had. Big move. And with big moves, whether residential or life changes, and residential is a life change, but they carry with them wrestlings within. And Jacob is no different than any one of us. And we are going to see from this scriptural account in verses 1 through 27 of chapter chapter 46, a big move of Jacob and how God is near and working with Jacob through it all. We will work through these 27 verses in three points. In three points. The first one has already been alluded to And that is ambivalence. Ambivalence, found in the first three verses. Ambivalence, a place where Jacob finds himself and is common to us all when we are facing a big move. What is ambivalence, other than just a fun word to say? Ambivalence, a Google search of the word defines it as the state of having mixed feelings or contradictory ideas about something or someone. What should be emphasized, for it's not included, is that these mixed feelings or contradictory ideas about something or someone are strong. Are strong, not just light. Not light in the weight they bear upon someone, but strong and all the more, the bigger the move is the bigger the move that is triggering them. Do you think Jacob is feeling this right now in Genesis 46 at 130 years old? Since God called him, since God called him and confirmed his covenant with him, the same covenant his father Isaac had and his grandfather Abraham had, From the beginning, Jacob has been told by God that he, God, would make him into a great nation and that they were to inherit the land of, not Egypt, but Canaan, right? Canaan, the promised land. So now, at the end of his life, at the age of 130 years, uproot and leave this land for Egypt? Egypt, the very place God told his father Isaac not to go during, guess what? A time of famine in the land that God summoned in the land of Canaan. And also being the place Abraham went to briefly during another time of famine in the land. And briefly because once God made known to Pharaoh in Egypt that Sarah was not Abraham's sister, as Abraham's story went to save his own neck, when this was revealed to Pharaoh by God, along with the warning to Pharaoh, if harm should come to them, what did Pharaoh do? 
get out. Like Pharaoh sent them away out of Egypt. So now, now a time of famine once again, and I am to go to Egypt? Like question mark in Jacob's head? Yet, this is where his long lost son is, whom he hasn't seen for over how many years? Over 20 years, right? Believing him to be dead, only now to learn that he is alive, and Jacob gets to see him face to face and embrace him. Like, that's exciting news. He thought he was dead, he didn't believe the news, and then he believed when he saw all that Joseph sent to bring him home. His soul revived, right? That's exciting. And there was, promise of provi- uh, there was promise of abundant provision. While they're in a, in a time of famine, there is a promise of abundant provision to boot. I mean, this is, this is very good things to be excited about, to be excited for. While still, there is this promise God made to him that he can't ignore. A promise that involved him being in the land of Canaan. Do you see how, how he could be wrestling through this? Not to mention his age. Like travel was difficult in these days. Imagine how much more so for the elderly. Jacob is 130 years old. We'll see him like leaning on his staff as he blesses Joseph's children in the upcoming chapters in Genesis. The frailty of of old age and the concern that he will die in Egypt and not to mention, excuse me, and not in the promised land of Canaan. You know, the land where he has spent the majority of his life. He has children now and grandchildren now as we will be to be concerned over. In fact, Jason just read through all of their names. You know, the exact number of descendants, which we'll spend more time towards the end of the sermon. The, the idea being, though, like, yes, going to Egypt because of the famine and by invitation of his son Joseph brings with it, like, life and, and, and the joy of reunion and restoration of a broken family. All very good things, things to be thankful for, to be excited about. But it also brings the farewell of what has been known for so long. What, is, what was familiar and comfortable, what has been a part of God's promise thus far, and therefore it brings with it new questions and things to be concerned about, things that put you in an ambivalent state. Strong, mixed feelings or contradictory ideas about the big move being taken. Ambivalence comes with the big moves we make in life. Again, don't forget, we are not just talking about a residential change, as big as that is, but big moves, changes in life that come in all different forms. And along with them, ambivalence. It's not an abnormal place to be. You know, in fact, one could argue it's, it's common place to be at such times in life, to have those mixed feelings. Well, in this place, what does Israel do? Like, this is where he's at. What does he do? What, is, what does Jacob do? You know, same person, Israel and Jacob. 
Does he provide a good example for us when we find ourselves in such a place of facing big move decisions? New job, new town, marriage, some life-altering decision? Does Jacob provide a good example? I believe he does. I believe he does. He, he worships. <laughs> this is his, what he does. He worships. Jacob goes to a place of worship. He goes to spend time with God. Verse 1. So Israel, that's Jacob as well. So Israel took his journey with all that he had, all that he had, and came to Beersheba and offered sacrifices to the God of his father, Isaac. He goes to a place of worship. And notably, Beersheba to worship God. Beersheba, the same place, guess who? His father and his grandfather went to commune with God. This their same God. Genesis 21, 33. And Abraham, Jacob's grandfather. And Abraham planted a grove in Beersheba and called there on the name of the Lord, the everlasting God. Genesis 26, 23 through 25, this time speaking of Jacob's father, Isaac. Isaac went to Beersheba, and he, Isaac, built an altar there and called upon the name of the Lord and pitched his tent there, and there Isaac's servants dug a well. Worship. Worship. Go to God. Give attention to God. Give praise, adoration, and thanksgiving to God. Spend time with God. Seek the face of God. Invoke. Like, I think that was a part of it. Like, seeking counsel from God. God, is this your plan? As he's offering sacrifices? You know, it's all a part of worshiping God. When facing big moves, directing your heart towards your Father, in heaven, in praise, thanksgiving, and beckoning for his help, is the right action to take. That is the right action to take. Notice the only thing we have recorded of Jacob saying in Beersheba is, here I am. He goes there to a place of worship, sacrifices, and all we have recorded of him saying is, is here I am. He says this in verse 2, in answering God who spoke to him in visions of the night, saying, Jacob, Jacob. And this is a right response to expect. The right response to expect when one deliberately commits time and worship to God. God will draw near. He will draw near. It will likely be a vision. Not to miss that altogether, that's possible, but likely not a vision. But you can be confident in God according to his word, as James 4, 8 says, that if you draw near to God, he will draw near to you. He will draw near to you. I love that relationship, right? He draws near. And he draws near with complete understanding of where you are at. He's not oblivious to where that is. I mean, look at... Look at verse 3. Then he, God, said, I am God, the God of your father. Do not be afraid to go down to Egypt, for there I will make you into a great nation. 
don't be afraid to go to Egypt. Is that not revealing that Jacob had fear about doing so and that God was fully aware of it? Otherwise, why would God say that? (laughs) He knows what's going on in Jacob's heart. Don't be afraid, Jacob. Don't be afraid to go down to Egypt. I'm going to make you into a great nation there. You know, so God's word here affirms Jacob's ambivalent state in the face of this big move before him. A state that Jacob was was fearful over. Doesn't mean if we're ambivalent, they're always fearful. But in, in this case, he was fearful. Perhaps it was a frailty of his age. I don't know, but he was fearful and God knew it. And he draws near with that understanding of where Jacob is at. He was fearful due to his mixed feelings and contradictory ideas over this big move. The familiar question is perhaps on his mind. And I say familiar because I believe we've all been there. I know I have. And that is like, what to do? (laughs) You've got these strong feelings that are contradictory and ideas like, ah, what to do? In this case, Jacob knew what to do. He did know what to do. He knew the answer. Like before this, Israel took his journey with all he had and came to Beersheba. So he already knew what to do. He's doing it. He stops here on his way to Egypt, but even if one knows the answer and is acting on it, it doesn't typically evade them from having the question haunt them. Like, ah, like that's so real, right? And God, aware of Jacob's fearful state, draws near to him, because you know, Jacob's drawing near to God. God draws near to him with that much-needed assurance when facing big moves in life which is our second point. Already begun some in verse 3 and extends into verse 4. Assurance. God brings this much-needed assurance. And I say already begun because of how God addresses him. I am God. Like, start with me. I am God, the God of your father. Like, assuring Jacob from the gate of who it is who is speaking to him. And along with, along with doing so, reaffirming his covenant that he made with them. I rem- remember, I am God, one who's covenanted with you. The covenant that he made with Jacob and with Jacob's father and grandfather. Like, Jacob, the covenant is still intact. God is communicating this here. It's still intact. Nothing has, has veered at all. Nothing has faltered. Don't be afraid to go down to Egypt. For there I will make you into a great nation. And note the emphasis. I, I will. <laughs> and make you. Like, as small as you are as a people, Jacob. I will make you into a great nation. Heavily weighted. Has nothing to do with you, Jacob, as far as this being done. I will make you into a great nation, providing the assurance Jacob needed to hear from God in this moment. Everything is packed and ready to go, and he's trembling like, really? Yes. Yes. Really. In that moment, giving that assurance, an assurance that God builds upon, (laughs) which I just get goosebumps over this. He builds upon it in verse 4. Look at this. I myself will go down with you to Egypt, 
Isn't that sweet? That's so fantastic. Not just don't be afraid. I will do this. But check it out, Jacob. I will be with you. I'm going to go down with you. I myself will go down with you to Egypt, and I will also bring you up again. And Joseph's hand shall close your eyes. I mean, how was that for a series of promises to provide the needed assurance for a frail old man wrestling with doubt? Man, that's so great. Abundant provision to be utterly dependent upon God who assures that it is he, he God, who will do it all. I can almost see this, like, this conversation and like, God saying, this is a big move, Jacob. I know, I know it is a big move. But trust me. Oh, Jacob, trust me. It's a part of my plan. It is a part of my plan. I will make you into a great nation while you're in Egypt. You will see your son before you die. I promise you will survive this journey. You will make it there. And you will return to this land. You as in your remains, your bones are going to be brought back, as we know from Scripture, but, but also you as in the nation I'm making from you. The nation I'm making from you, I will return to this land. But most importantly, and above it all, Jacob, know this, that I will be with you every step of the way. God is so intimate. He's such a friend, right? What is that, Abraham? God is a friend of God? God, awesome. And we who have placed our trust and hope in the living God through faith in Jesus Christ can have this same assurance. This same assurance that we read here in chapter 46 that we see coming through in the life of Jacob and God meeting him there, we have that through our faith in Jesus Christ, through the relationship we have with God through Jesus. That same assurance, the assurance that, that rises from time with God. It's not going to come any other pathway. It comes with time with God. Don't miss the connection between the two saints. Time with God. In his word, in prayer, in sacri- and in sacrificial living, in accordance to it, and note this, along with other believers. Along with other believers, fellowship with other believers fits right in there. We are a body. It's not a finger on its own. Like, we're all attached. We are knitted together in the body of Christ. This works itself out in the fullness of the body, whereby assurance comes. Romans 1 Chapter 1, 11 through 12, listen to this. For I long, this is Paul writing to the church. For I, Paul, I long to see you, like physically, face to face, see you, that I may impart to you, not through the letter only, but I want to do it in person. I may impart to you some spiritual gift to strengthen you. And we're not talking lift and weight strengthen, inner man strengthen, to strengthen you. That is that we, note that. He's not just saying just for you only because I'm the powerhouse of an apostle. No, we, that we may, here it is, that we may mutually be encouraged by each other's faith, (laughs) both yours and mine. This is Paul who wrote scripture. This is Paul who was 
stoned. I mean, you know his story. Yours and mine. I need to be strengthened by your faith just as much as you need to be strengthened by mine. You see that coming through? This is Paul writing to the, writing to the church in Rome and the, the strengthening, the strengthening of one another's faith by one another's faith should never be thought light of. And all of this works together to rise to the forefront of our hearts the blessed assurance we can have as Christians, as children of God. That God will be with us through every step in life. Through every low value, value, through every low valley, through every mountaintop experience and everything in between. Like God will be with you through it all. The Son of God, Jesus, who went with us unto death, will he not be near to you through all of life? In fact, he tasted death for us. He went there so that we don't have to, right? If he went to that depth to be near to us, do you think he's not going to be with us every step of the way? All the way to the day he raises us up to together to be with him forever where we will be? James 4, 8. Again, I repeat, draw near to God and he will draw near to you. All through life and most especially when facing big moves in life. Jacob does so here and serves as a great example of not only what we ought to do, you know, worshiping God, but what comes from God when one does. Bear in mind also, bear in mind also, just because God provides this assurance that he is with with you, with Jacob, but also with us, it doesn't mean ambivalence is removed. Like Jacob's still old. He didn't, he didn't get like a, a fresh body to kind of hit this journey. He's still old. The trip will still be difficult and even painful for old Jacob. The sadness of, of leaving the promised land, that's going to remain. That won't be just gone like a, like a vapor. It will remain. That sadness will remain as, as well as all the unknowns that lay ahead. You see, the the assurance that God is with you doesn't remove these things, but it does supply the strength and peace of mind to remain faithful and obedient to God who will be with you and is trustworthy every step of the way. You're not tossed to and fro by them, right? God who is with you is your anchor, your rudder, and your sail all in one. He meets every need of yours to keep the ship of your life sailing in accordance to his will with not one iota of your life unaccounted for, which is both comforting and sobering at the same time, along with being our third and closing point. Our third and closing point, accounting. Accounting. God will keep a detailed account of our lives. We see a picture of this in the remaining verses in consideration this morning. Verses 5 through 27. Yeah, big fat chunk to finish it off. Um, which lists the names of Jacob's family. 
who would multiply into the nation Israel over the next 400 years while they are in Egypt. There is, there is an accounting of every person moving from the land of Canaan to Egypt. Verse 26 and 27 sums it all up. All the persons belonging to Jacob who came into Egypt, who were his own descendants, not including Jacob's sons' wives, were 66 persons in all. And the sons of Joseph who were born to him in Egypt were two. All the persons of the house of Jacob, that would be every one of his descendants, you know, the entire family tree, all the persons of the house of Jacob who came into Egypt were 70, all of whom God would multiply while in Egypt to be this great nation. 70. 70 whom God would multiply into a nation while they lived in Egypt. There may be, there may be one here who's recently read through the book of Acts and recalls Stephen's speech made in uh, chapter 7, which, by the way, it's just worth a read. Like where we're at right now, he has it's just a marvelous summary accounting of what we've been going through in, in Genesis for quite some time. It's just worth reading. But, but if you've read it recently, perhaps you're, you're recalling what he said when he's speaking of this very move of Jacob to Egypt where they become a nation. Stephen states it as being 75 persons in all. 75. Well, didn't we just read in verse 27 of chapter 46 of Genesis that it was 70? Yep. Well, so, so which is it? Is it 70 or is it 75? Well, what we, can be, what we can be assured of is that it's all of them, right? It's all of them. Not one is missing. All was accounted for. But why is it stated to be 70 persons in all in Genesis and also in Exodus 1.5 and Deuteronomy 10.22, three times in the Old Testament, it's stated as being 70 persons in all, while in the New Testament and the book of Acts, it's 75 persons in all. Why is this the case? There are scholar explanations offered to reconcile the perceived discrepancy. One of them being, and the likelihood of it, just simply different computation methods used in which both 70 or 75, depending on which method used, are accurate. Another possibility for the perceived discrepancy having to do with the copying of the scriptures. Like small variations in Hebrew characters can cause some significant deviation. So while the Bible is inerrant in its original autograph, Minor transmission errors caused by copying are, are not disputed. Yet, though such errors exist, and none has removed or altered any doctrine of the scriptures, nor affect any prophecy or fulfillment. And lastly, and probably most importantly, as summarized by an article I researched online, the very fact that 75 is retained in all the New Testament manuscripts, that's original, all New Testament manuscripts, and no attempt was made to harmonize it with the Old Testament renderings, which obviously differed, 
show that it was the number intended by the author, faithfully recorded and transmitted to us. With certainty, we can accept it as correct. Stephen cited it with purpose, and his intent in using this given number is firm. It was to show that God took a very small number of people and turned them into a great nation for his own glory. End quote. So important to see that, because if you're reading those two and come across that, that question is going to be in your face, right? So therefore, we can be confident in God's word that every person is accounted for in Jacob's family, as it is with God when it comes to our lives. He knows the number of what? Who knows that? Little, who, I heard it. What is it, Have you? Hairs. Yeah, we know that verse. That's insane. A number that may be changing for some of us from time to time, but a number of hairs on your head. Along with every word before it's on your tongue. You think the hair truth blows your mind. How about that one? Before it's even on your tongue, meaning you're about ready to speak it, God already knows what it's going to be. He knows it all together. Not just some of them, all together. That's Psalm 193.4. The Lord who keeps you, he never slumbers or sleeps. Like he is constantly, his eyes are on you. His watchful eyes are on you continually and he'll be sure to preserve you to the end if you belong to him through faith in Jesus Christ. He is faithful to bring you home. He will surely do it. There is an accounting of everything. And this brings great comfort to our souls. But it also has a sobering effect, does it not? Comfort, as just noted, 1 Peter 1.5, like we, by God's power, are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. I mean, kept by God's power, by the power of God, those, those are very comforting words. Every detail of our lives will undergo the watchful oversight of our Heavenly Father. Matthew 10, 29 through 31. Are not two sparrows sold for a penny? Penny probably costs more to make than Ashley's worth these days, right? Not two, two sparrows sold for one penny worth nothing. And not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father. Like, he sees that. He's aware of it. He's mindful of that. But even the hairs, like here's that verse. But even, even the hairs of your head are all numbered. Fear not, therefore, you are of more value than many sparrows. What a sweet rest this brings to our soul. While it cannot go without a soberness of mind, right along with it. Amen? That watchful eye, that accounting of everything. Matthew 12, 36 and 37, for every idle word, right? Every idle word will also go under the watchful eye of Christ, of which we will give an account. Let alone true motives of the heart and every unrighteous deed done. All is naked and exposed before the eyes of him whom we must give a what? An account. Hebrews 4.13. We will give an account. 
And the reality of this ought to have a, a cage-rattling, sanctifying effect upon one who fears God. Like, just because you know you are forgiven and washed clean by the blood of Jesus Christ shed on the cross doesn't mean you can now think lightly of these things. Quite the opposite. Like, because of the cost, because of what Jesus has done and the new heart given you by the work of the Holy Spirit, it is your delight to reflect the life of Christ in your life in both word and deed. And, with in, and when anything... And when anything to the contrary occurs, you are grieved by it. Grieved, knowing it breaks the heart of your Father in heaven. Like Jesus, it breaks your heart of your Father in heaven who loves you, who loves you with a non-stop, never-ending love. And non-stop, never-ending love, the love that we see pointedly in the life of Jesus who set his face towards Jerusalem. You guys remember that? I think it's in Luke. Like that moment, things just shifted in ministry and like the cross was all that was on his mind to go there faithfully, set his eyes towards Jerusalem to fulfill the rescue mission his father put in place for him to accomplish. A love that when facing the reality of this big move, that could say you could call that a big move, like Jerusalem, that's a big move when facing the reality of it resulted in Jesus sweating droplets of blood when he went to the Father asking, my Father, if it be possible, it's almost like that question, like, is there another way? My Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. By this non-stop, never-ending love, Jesus glorified God by following through in obedience to his Father, that we may glorify God with our lives, with the blessed assurance of God being with us through every step along the way and for all eternity. Let's pray. Almighty God, as we come to the, the closing of our um, time with your word open and the preaching of it, I, I pray uh, first that, that there just be a fresh just awareness of your faithfulness. That even in that moment, Lord Jesus, which is a bit of a mystery, but it's, it's so revealing of the, the manhood that, that you bore, that there's the weakness of, of, of human flesh, that, we can, that there's that connection we have that you struggled, didn't waver in faith, but there was that struggling. It was, a, it was an agonizing moment. And you even asked the Father the question, if there is another way, and because of your love for us, that never-ending, non-stopping love, you were faithful to the end. God, thank you. And Father, I pray, whatever for each one of us, perhaps there's more than one, but maybe just, just one, whatever the big move is to for, before us this morning, 
that we'd be thinking of that. Is that, a, is that involving relationships? Is that involving a job? Is that involving ministry? Is that involving um, something within our, our marriage? With a, a, Whatever it is, God, that, that we would learn from this example of Jacob. That when we find ourselves in that place, that we go to you. We draw near to you and worship and praise and adoration and thanksgiving and beckoning your help. That you are a God who comes near, who understands, who is not removed from circumstances or the wrestlings of our heart, but you are right there. You are the one we are that is taking us to the mat sometimes. And 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 you are with us the whole time. To provide that assurance, to provide that counsel that we need. And so I pray, whatever that is, perhaps it's for for one of the, the youth here, that, that decision, even like myself confessing like there was that time I I wrestled am I in or am I not I'm done faking it done calling myself a a Christian when I'm not living as if I am so which one is it these are big move decisions father so I pray you would meet each and every one of us wherever we are at same as you met Jacob you would affirm your love for us, that you would assure us of your presence, that we would be guided and faithful to take those steps of faith and obedience to your will. God, I thank you for my brothers and sisters in Christ. I thank you for this family of believers. I thank you for this time we've been able to share together in lifting songs of praise and looking upon and studying through Uh, the pages of scripture, the the living word of God. I pray, Holy Spirit, that it has been uh, effectual in deepening our love for you and for one another in this, this world that needs to know and see and experience the true love of God on display. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this sermon from Pillar Bible Fellowship. Please email any comments or questions about the sermon to feedback at pillarhoodriver.org.